0: Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galletti. Taylor Halverson is a regular contributor to The Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture. He is a teaching and learning consultant who has been assigned in the past to the Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University. He has his bachelor's degree in Near Eastern Studies from BYU. He also has several other degrees, a master's in biblical studies from Yale University, a master's and PhDs. I put plural on PhDs. He's got a master's degree in instructional systems technology as well as a PhD in the same subject. He also has a PhD in Judaism and Christianity and antiquity, all from Indiana University. He's very well educated, and we're grateful to have him come in to talk about his article that he wrote and presented in the Deseret News entitled, In the Gospel, Faith Must Come First. So welcome, Taylor Halverson. Thank you for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I was thinking of making a joke that you would come in and be able to give us a lesson on student debt because you probably incurred a bit of that in your <laughs> six degrees or whatever that you have. Um, but uh, definitely I want to first start out with asking, what what exactly is a teaching
1: and learning consultant?
0: Why not a teacher or a professor? What's the difference?
1: So my role is to actually support professors on campus to be great teachers. Okay. And anyone who gets a PhD primarily has been trained as a researcher. And getting training on what it means to design learning experiences for students and to be a teacher is also a very complex skill like research. It's typically not something that PhD programs provide. So you or,
0: teach teachers? Yeah, in, I, I in teach teachers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or is that too simplistic? That's overly well, simplistic. Well, it almost
1: sounds like I know everything. that I know all the truths, <laughs> and they come teacher. to me to get it. And, you know, I'm I'm a learner like everybody else, but I'm there to be a facilitator, help them to discover their own capabilities and to actually shine. We have great teachers at BYU, so it's like working with the top students in yeah. school all the time. It's, it's fabulous. Well, you do other things. You teach your other classes too, right? Yeah, I do teach a class. Um, I teach course called history of creativity in the Arts, science and technology it's a it's a world civ course you have world civ 201 and 202 at brigham young university your uh, general education requirement and this is a flavor of that but it's focused on how have people and institutions and civilizations in the past been creative or not and then how can we become more creative today Okay. So it's a fun little flavor of World Civ. Well,
0: I, I couldn't help but go to your, uh, when you when you Google your name, you have a ratemyprofessor.com page. Oh, do you yeah. Ever,
1: do you ever go there
0: and yeah, check I've, that out?
1: Yes. And so, you know, you get people who, it's a GE course with 250 students. Yeah. And I tell us very openly to students, I said, imagine doing a large group blind date and you're the date leader <laughs> and you decide, I want to go to this really fancy steak restaurant that I have loved. I'm going to take you all there. And lo and behold, you show up and a third of the students are vegan. It kind of ruins the moment, right? <laughs> it's not a good date for them. And that's a challenge in a teaching and learning enterprise is that you don't always know who your students are. The students don't know who the teacher is. And and you can't meet every learner's need. Sure. So you're going to get some funny comments. And the one that I think is funny is a student saying, this teacher contributes to global warming. Really? <laughs> well, meaning... <laughs> All the hot air from my lecture. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. And <laughs> I don't find those comments particularly helpful. I'm always in for constructive feedback, positive or negative, but it uh, comments like that are mostly just, uh, they make me laugh.
0: Well, it's university students telling themselves that they're smart too, right? It's, it's their own version of hot air.
1: Humility <laughs> is the one of the most powerful learning tools, and we all need it.
0: Yeah, there you go. Well, in preparation for the interview, I also went to taylorhalverson.com and was reading over the many different things that you're involved in, which you have a lot of different chair positions at BYU. You do tour guides uh, or your tour guide for LDS-themed travel. I believe you even do that with your wife sometimes. Yep. Is that right? So Yeah,
1: she was doing a PhD at Stanford in modern Middle Eastern history. So she's an expert on the modern side. I'm an expert on the ancient side. So <laughs> There you go. We, we tag team.
0: Awesome. And I guess you've written multiple books and articles and, and things, we, of course, we'll we'll address in a little bit. But And I want to ask a question, and I hope it doesn't come across sounding judgmental or anything, but with all the different things that you have going, how do you find the time to study the scriptures or, or give time to personal development and growth and those sorts of things?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, a lot of my scripture study is with the family or actually when I'm working on a project that it's a question that I'm interested in, so I have to get back into the scriptures. In the sequential reading of the scriptures, like I'm going to start in First Nephi and, and in six months work my way through Moroni 10, I haven't done that in some time. Maybe I should. Well, I guess I'm doing it with my family. I find that getting a question about the scriptures and digging in and satiating that need is how I do that. For me, personal development is all these things I'm involved in. So I have my day job, right, teaching and learning consultant, which sure. I love. Everything else you see that I'm involved in are like my – these are my passions. This is my – these are my hobbies, right? I just realized years ago that my hobbies are inspiring others to learn, and that means I also want to be learning and exploring a variety of very diverse fields. I'm quite interdisciplinary, and being in higher education both makes that more possible and has some interesting strictures about it.
0: Okay. Well, you are also multilingual, from what I gather. <laughs> you you do Spanish, biblical Hebrew, Greek, and and a bunch of others that you consider secondary languages. I'm curious how learning in general and and just knowing multiple languages has changed your approach to learning spiritual things. Has 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 that had any effect in that regard?
1: Yeah, actually, languages. I love languages. I, they're the the foundation for communication. And I love when I'm in a class or a Sunday school class or it might be a sacrament meeting or some other meeting and people are using words and I can think through, oh, I know what the root for that is and <laughs> other meanings. Or I might look it up really quick on Wikipedia or Google. I t- try to do it quietly so I don't interrupt people. But go. I find the meanings of words really Powerful to expand our understanding of what we're really trying to communicate and kind of the the latent possibilities that are packed into our communication.
0: Very cool. So th- let's get into your article uh, that you wrote for Deseret News. And you've written several. So this one that we're going to talk about is called In the Gospel Faith Must Come First. And I guess it addresses a challenge or at least a shift in the way that people approach learning, uh, secularly perhaps, but uh, it does spill over into. The way that people learn, regardless of of their their intellectual pursuit, and that is that everything needs to be there needs to be an evidence of something first. This idea of uh, disbelieve until prove lot proven logically true. So I guess it seems kind of at first like a prudent approach. You know, why, why not wait until you have some evidence of something before you believe it? Um, but but you call it difficult, if not outright outlandish, in your article. Maybe you can expound on why you've come
1: to that conclusion? Well, it's mostly because of how people narrate what they think faith is, right? You got, this word is just packed with all sorts of theological implications, potentially, and a whole long history of what people think faith is. Uh, I, I believe faith, I think there's a line of knowledge, meaning a trajectory, a spectrum, and perfect knowledge is at one end, and faith is Everything else. And that, as to get to perfect knowledge, you have to start with faith. You can't, I don't believe I, that it's possible to get to perfect knowledge without faith. And what you are doing is acting in faith because you don't have total perfect knowledge on something. And as the truth of that faith is confirmed, you develop growing knowledge. Maybe it's disconfirmed, and so you actually had false faith on something. And science does this all the time. I have a theory, so I believe something, and I'm going to act on that belief and confirm it or falsify it. And eventually you might gain perfect knowledge or complete knowledge on that particular question or topic. But eventually, when you have perfect knowledge, you no longer have faith in that particular topic. Yeah. So again, it's just part of the spectrum. So if you ever want to gain perfect knowledge in something, you got to start with faith because— How do you have somebody hand you perfect knowledge on something? Because life is all about experience. The atonement underscores learning. Everything in life is about learning in the atonement. Without the atonement, there's no learning. Without learning, the atonement could not actually have power. And it's all about giving us the opportunity to act, to choose, to try things out. Maybe you're making mistakes along the way to get to that perfect knowledge. And if you don't start with faith, what do you have? you're inert you're not doing anything at all well
0: a lot of people look at faith as some kind of irrational position that it's right that it, that there is it's the absence of logic but that's not entirely the case as as far as you're you're putting right. it part of why this this came up was uh, an exchange that you had as a student at Yale with another student yeah uh, that you relate in the uh, in the article can you i mean not word for word but can you maybe tell that story and,
1: and how that plays into this I was asked to do a presentation on Mormonism. I was at the Yale Divinity School. It was very ecumenical, right? There were 30 or 40 different Christian denominations represented, and everyone was quite open. They wanted to deeply understand other people's theologies. It was really quite fun to sit around the lunch table and I bet and have not debates but kind of friendly questions like, you know, why do you guys have this position and so forth. And so some friends said, hey, let's have a presentation on, on Mormonism because none of us have really don't know a whole lot. And this is really the before the internet was widely available. I mean, I guess it was early 19, or about 1999 or something. But the, the, the idea was that I wanted to kind of lay out just the basics. It was interesting that when I completed the presentation, where I talked about the Book of Mormon and how it was translated by the gift and power of God, and so here we had been as students studying the Old Testament in Hebrew, looking at different uh, manuscript traditions and trying to determine which ones were more accurate and relevant for translating the Bible. And so, it was just kind of the the expected question where a friend said, and, and we were all friends. So, when I wrote it in Desert News, I didn't try to set it up that this was some kind of... It's not ad, adversarial. It wasn't adversarial. It was actually a very, very thoughtful question. He wasn't trying to challenge me. He, he just said, hey, um, so where's the Book of Mormon? You know, where, where are the original plates? Yeah. I mean, we ask those questions about the Bible. Where are the original records? We don't have the originals, but we have copies of copies, and we can look at those. And that's a very common thing in biblical studies. So, very common to ask. Hey, where's the original records for the Book of Mormon? We do have the printer's manuscript, which is helpful. So, I said, well, uh, they're gone. He's like, well, where are they? Uh, Angel and I took them back, so we don't have access to them anymore. And I just remember him saying, look, I don't mean any disrespect, but that (laughs) just sounds really convenient for your story. It's like, you know, how can you believe that? It was a very sincere question. But here we are, here we were as Christians pursuing deeper understanding of the Bible. And that's where I just responded, you know, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe in the bodily resurrection? And obviously the answer is yes. That's foundational to be a Christian. It's, without that, there is no Christianity. And that's when I said, well, show me the body. And I didn't say that in a way to, Him on the defensive, but to kind of show him that that story is just as if you want to take a scientific standpoint, it sounds ludicrous. What a dead body came back to life. Oh, but the evidence for that body is now missing, meaning the body's not that's convenient accessible to to us anymore. Well, how convenient, yeah. And and he got it right away, he's like, Oh, that I totally see how you could have faith in—well, not faith in a book, but believe that there is a sacred record that was translated and you no longer have access to it. And that sparked the idea to write this little article that that if we really want to get to perfect knowledge, we can't wait until—we can't wait to act until all evidence is in. In fact, you cannot— create evidence until you start acting. In fact, the word evidence comes from the Latin, you know, video to video, to see. And if you're sitting somewhere and you're and you want to see what's around you, well, first you got to open your eyes. And then standing up and walking around, the more you walk around, the more you're going to see, the more input. And again, that's just a metaphor that if we want to get to perfect knowledge, you've got to get up, you've got to open your eyes, you've got to act. And you might Make some mistakes along the way. Fine. The atonement is there so you can take actions and not be condemned by your choice to seek learning.
0: So in this case, your, your article is kind of asserting this idea that we approach spiritual matters with faith, faith first. So what tends to be the end result if faith comes second or third or somewhere down the line? Can you even, can you even do that?
1: I don't know if I have ever personally known anyone who is committed to a cause that they have not yet, have not first deeply believed in it. I mean, even this building that we're in for doing this interview, somebody had a vision for making it happen. And it wasn't like they waited for it to happen before they believed it could happen. They had a vision that we think it's possible they went to work and they acted and so I think it's the same with with spirituality and theology and and, re, and religion. Anything that matters in this world, you've got to be committed. You have to jump in and be committed to something. And it's okay if you change your mind. But even—and I love science. I mean, I take Science magazine, I read it religiously, and I say that kind of in a funny way. <laughs> I find it fascinating. And the word science is a Latin word meaning knowledge. Shouldn't we seek after all knowledge and truth? I mean, Jill Smith says— True Mormonism is to embrace all truth. Great, so I'm going to go seek it wherever it comes from, I'm going to get it. And even the best scientists, all the scientists that I know, they wouldn't say it like this, and so I don't mean to pigeonhole them, but they act on faith. They have a belief in something, and as they act on it, it gets confirmed or falsified, and that moves them along the spectrum so they have less and less faith in whatever they got into and more and more perfect knowledge about that. And for me, it's just kind of a very simple metaphor instead of getting ourselves all worked up that faith is somehow irrational faith isn't necessarily irrational but it is a form of learning in fact last night in my world civ course we talked about epistemology right the this how do we know things right and i try to help students see that there are many ways of knowing in fact i ask them to consider for themselves what are some of the most important things that you are certain of in your life maybe make a list of 10 or 15 things you're just totally certain of or or really certain of. What is the evidence that you have in your life for those certainties? How did you get it? In some cases, it might be scientific reasoning. In others, it might be critical thinking. Others, it might be some kind of artistic experience where they experienced the beauty and power of a movie or a play, and they felt something truthful about human emotions Mm -hmm. because they saw how Shakespeare conveyed that through a beautiful acting scene. Or perhaps it's the spirit of God. All these are different epistemologies, and so I actually see absolutely no conflict between science and religion. I mean, sure, it sells papers to say there is, and people <laughs> can make a, a career shouting about the conflict. I see it as different epistemologies, that science is a, is a realm of seeking knowledge and truth, and they have their methodologies and their worldview for doing it, and spiritual concerns might have a different sphere of, of how they do it. Art, I mean, beauty... Can science give the full and final answer of what beauty is? No. But they can give a really powerful answer and they can do some really cool experiments. They're even doing some now with brain scans as you show pictures of mm. pretty people. What does that do to your brain? But it still doesn't tell you the, the perfect knowledge of all truth about what beauty is. And that's why I say embrace all epistemologies. Don't create conflict that I'm just going to go into science. So, therefore, I reject all other forms of truth, seeking and knowing. I say seek after all truth. Now, maybe your career, you have to kind of be committed to in your day job, a certain approach. But you can still hold on to the joy and beauty of having faith and religiosity and and loving art. And frankly, we need more of that. We need interdisciplinary people, not only disciplined people.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I guess... When when you deal sometimes with people that—let's uh, just call it a a faith crisis. I'm not fully convinced that that's a great term always, but you've got people that, that consider themselves to be in what they call a faith crisis or a position of doubt even. That's more a position of, of not knowing something, um, but yet they feel that they know something that has caused them some cognitive dissonance. Yes. So how does faith apply to someone that is— perhaps intellectually conflicted with a spiritual
1: thing. Yeah, it's, it's a real situation. And those spiritual and emotional and, and mental um, drama and even trauma is real. I have felt some of that in my own life. And I would, it's not simple. So I can only talk from my own experience. I had to get back and say, what do I fundamentally know? Or what are the things that matter most to me? Because I found that as I studied history and religion and biblical scriptures, that some of the beliefs that I had that I thought were important to me, I couldn't hold on to some of them given a variety of forms of, uh, other forms of evidence I was gathering in in my study. And so I got down to what ultimately matters. And for me, it was, I know Jesus Christ is real. I know he's my personal savior. I have felt the atonement in my life. So that's real. That was real to me. And that brought me joy, beauty. It drew me into relationships with people. And I would say covenant relationships. And I know it's a really theological term, but, you know, life is all about relationships and community, whether you claim to be religious or not. And it's all about promises made and expectations of what you're going to do. When you get a job, you're making a, you're, contracting with people and it's all about relationships and I share that only because I when I got to the fundamental that I know that Christ is real that atonement is there that makes it possible for me to act in life and to actually be covered when I make mistakes if I ask for forgiveness and try to fix those things that that will be covered I realized everything else is an add-on and it was hugely liberating to get to that point It was crushing to have to kind of let go of pet minor beliefs that at one point seemed important to my testimony or my sense of truth to realize that I can just get down to the fundamental basics and it's love and God and I'll add everything else along the way as it fits in. And so did that resolve the mental crisis? No, I still have questions that are unresolved. I just came to a point where I realized that the joy and purposefulness of life cannot be put on hold while I wait for questions to be resolved. It should be the other way around, that the questions get put on hold or that I wait for the answers to develop and to be discovered while I deeply immerse myself in the love of life, loving others, engaging in relationship with others, building things that matter to others, failing and improving and learning. And either the questions will get answered or they won't. But I don't have to die because these questions go unanswered. Yeah, And that took time to get comfortable with the dissonance, comfortable that there are things I may not get answers to immediately. And I have real empathy for the struggle. I've been through it. I know what people have experienced and I don't want to say, oh, it's some easy process. You can now take the words I've just shared here in this interview and <laughs> you can plug it in your brain and you wake up tomorrow and boom, you're gonna feel better about life. Um it's a process. Yeah. And we're all at different stages. And that's why relationships matter, that we're there to help one another and care and concern and to listen. And uh, you know, where possible try to provide better articulated responses, but I think one of the best things we all can do is to love one another be compassionate, and understanding, and, and also for all of us to take the long view that perfect knowledge is going to take time and it's going to take that crisis of having to act without knowing the end from the beginning. It's not fun. Humans are not designed <laughs> to want to act that way. That's our fallen nature, and that's why God has designed it this way so that we are required... To make choices without always knowing the fullness of truth, but as we act, that the truthfulness of what we're doing will be revealed. Or if it's false, it'll become clear that this is not the right approach, and we'll have to change course.
0: Well, and then there's this, all these scriptures start popping into my head. That you know, if any man will do the will, he'll, do my will, he'll know the doctrine. Um, and I, I actually found something the other day in gospel doctrine class. We were talking about Matthew 11. Uh, verses 28 through 30, which is the uh, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you, etc. And I found an interesting footnote to the come unto me section. It said, look in the topical guide under problem solving. Hmm. And I thought, in what ways do does coming unto Christ solve our problems. That's a great insight. And and so what you're talking about it goes back to that at least it feels like it where when you're talking about putting faith first it's not don't learn. In fact, it's learning exactly the way Christ wanted us to learn and that is to do what he's asked and then we will have the answers. Our problems will be solved. The questions that we have will be answered. Is that does that kind of summarize where you're getting that's with That's a great this? insight. Okay.
1: I would never thought of it that way. And I, that's why I love talking to other people because <laughs> it always expands our understanding of truth. I, I sometimes share this little metaphor with, with students in my creativity class. Uh, perfectionism is just a, a skill that Mormons are very good at. <laughs> I've dealt with it a lot too. Well, not that I'm perfect, but I've certainly had that deep desire to never you're make a mistake. You're perfect in your right? desire for it. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I talked to... I try to explain to students this the struggle that we all deal with when we try to be perfect, that it often will compel us to inaction, which means we can never reach perfection if we don't act. It's the same thing if, well, if I want to be totally rational in all I do, well, that's like you're trying to be perfect. Like you have to have all the answers before you ever commit to anything and ever act or ever do anything. So here's an example. There was a missionary who was calling a Spanish speaking mission and he never once made a mistake in any form or fashion, grammatically or even vocabulary, in his mission. Never once. Hmm. is that incredible? Wow. Not one grammatical or vocabulary mistake. <laughs>
0: I have a hard time believing well, that. Well, you know how he pulled it off?
1: <laughs> he never spoke. Oh. And by never <laughs> speaking, he never made a mistake. Gotcha. Now, this is not a true story. It's, it's a little metaphor, parable, if you... And the idea is that he actually was perfect, but totally useless and actually never experienced anything of value. And sometimes in our desire for perfection, we choose not to act. Sometimes in our desire to have perfect knowledge, we sit around waiting for that perfect knowledge to happen to us versus get out there and act. God will cover everything if you make a mistake. I mean, in fact, if you don't act, you have denied the atonement. The atonement is to— Underscore and underwrite every choice and action you've ever made. Except, you know, don't deny, you know, don't don't do the unforgivable (laughs) sin. Everything else, God will cover. Experiment. Try things, right? Be moral. (laughs) But let yourself try living. Try being moral. try Well, obviously try being moral. Try it out. (laughs) Go for it. What happens when you love other people? What happens when you practice forgiveness. What happens when you actually choose to believe in God in the face of crushing doubt? If you stay in the doubt, you will be stuck there forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. You will never know perfect knowledge. But if you try to act outside of the doubt, even though you're feeling it, but you act as though the doubt doesn't exist, you will actually start to find answers and truth and the learning that is intended in the plan of salvation. And again, this is where we get ourselves stuck, is that we just want perfection, we want total rationality, and we want that to be nice and clean and not hurt. We are here to experience pain so that we can experience, ultimately, the sweet joy of knowledge and truth and development of who we truly are meant to be. Yeah. Well, Taylor
0: Halverson, you are a busy, busy man. Uh, clearly the author of this article, uh, In the Gospel, Faith Must Come First, published in the Deseret News. We'll have a link to that at the posting of this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. Thank you very much for coming in and giving us your insights on the, the importance of faith in, in our quest to find more knowledge.
1: Well, thank you for your interest.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galletti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.